0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Happy Hour History. I'm your host, Caden. So today's episode is actually um, a bit different from what you guys might be used to. I am here by myself. Um, I have researched a topic and I am just going to speak directly to you guys. So I'm still teaching a lesson. Um, I'm still having a drink, obviously but instead of kind of having that third party that I'm talking directly to and then you guys hear me teaching them, I'm just going to be speaking directly to you guys. Today's episode is on a woman who really kind of broke the glass ceiling um, and redefined what a woman could do in a time period that was so dominated by men. She is the original badass bitch of the Baroque art world and her name is Artemisia Ginelleschi. I'm kind of I guess you would say like more of a traditional historian, not an art historian. Um, I think art is very interesting, but when you start kind of analyzing the art, I think I'm probably not as strong as somebody who's trained to do so would be. So obviously my discussion of art um, might be a little bit basic. Having said that, for anyone who's totally unfamiliar with art, which I think would be a lot of people listening to this, hopefully kind of taking it very from kind of a very bottom-up standpoint, as in if you knew nothing about art, um, maybe that will be kind of a bit helpful in terms of understanding the way that she worked. Um, Also, um, I realized this is an audio podcast, um, so you can't see the art that I'm talking about. I am going to describe what I'm talking about when I mention any of her art, Um, of course, because I'm talking about her life It's not going to all be art, but her art is certainly a part of her life, and it would be kind of remiss of me to not discuss a few of her pieces. So... I will describe them so you can kind of mentally picture them if you're, you know, driving and can't access your phone and be googling and such. But the two easiest ways to be able to access these are: first, I will be naming all of the art pieces that I discuss, so you can always Google them. The other option, uh, which I prefer personally, is that you can always follow my Twitter account or follow like Facebook or Instagram, whatever. Uh, I'll be trying to post these images across all of my social media platforms, Um, but beyond all of that, just kind of the general reminders that I always give. The topics today are going to be a bit dark, which I think they kind of always are, but that's just history for you. The other thing is, as always, there is going to be a language warning. Even by myself, I don't imagine I'll be holding back too much, uh, especially because the story does get a bit uh, dark, as I said, so I imagine there will be some words said. But with that, uh, sorry mom, as always, but we can begin. So, um, as I said, Artemisia Gentileschi is really this 17th century Baroque badass artist. She's kind of really one of a kind in a sense, which unfortunately is a bit disappointing. Um, I kind of wish that female artists in the 17th century weren't one of a kind, but she really goes above and beyond, I think, what anyone really expected her to become. And that's really... Um, something to celebrate even though maybe we wish it wasn't just her and um, so first of all her beginnings is always a good place to start So she was born in 1593 in Rome. I also forgot I was going to say in my kind of intro notes that I am NOT Italian I don't speak Italian. I have Italian friends So they are probably gonna judge me if they ever listen to this and I mean like actual friends from Italy not like American Italians which is a different ballgame um, but they'll probably judge me for the way I pronounce these words. So if you're Italian, I do apologize. I'm going to give it my my all, but um, some of these are clearly going to go wrong. <laughs> but yeah, so she was born in 1593 in Rome. Her mother was Prudenzia di Ottaviano Montoni. Um, her father was called Orazio Genelleschi, and he was an Italian Baroque painter. So Orazio was friends with slash kind of like a student or... Um, maybe just like follower of Caravaggio. And Caravaggio was a very well-known Italian painter. He employed kind of a very realistic style to his art. So he would really try to observe the human state, which would be both physical and emotional, and then depict that with kind of dramatic use of lighting as well. And that really kind of comes to be what we think of as like Baroque art, so his influence was quite important on the Baroque period. We're going to talk more about what Baroque art means generally in just a minute, but Caravaggio has a very important influence on this kind of developing style. So Orazio, her father, and Caravaggio were both in prison together because there was a libel lawsuit brought against them. They'd both written about this altarpiece um, in very derogatory terms. And the man who created it basically brought this lawsuit against them. And so they were in prison together, which is quite interesting. And then just kind of to understand more about uh, Artemisia's life, her mother died when she was 12. So just like every Disney princess in these stories, I feel like this is kind of a common theme, but mothers don't tend to factor into a lot of these stories, unfortunately. And Artemisia is no exception to this rule. So I mentioned earlier that there's this kind of new developing style of Baroque art, and I really want to talk about the difference between Baroque art and Renaissance art, because that is important to know when you understand kind of Artemisia's artistic styles and like the way that she um, depicts things in her art. If you know anything about Renaissance art, you usually know perspective. Art in like the medieval times tended to be kind of quite flat. Obviously, a painting is two-dimensional, but art in the uh, medieval time tended to look quite two-dimensional as well. And that's not like a hundred percent every time that this is the case. So there are kind of exceptions to the rule, but in general you look at a piece of medieval art and it does sort of look very flat. Like the background and the foreground kind of all blend um, and you're not really getting that sense of perspective. So Renaissance art was able to kind of create perspective and dimension within something in two dimensions. And the focus that you should really think of kind of being the center point for the Renaissance art is stability. Baroque art, because it was able to build on Renaissance techniques that were already established, it was able to focus more on drama and to an extent instability. So Renaissance art is stability. Baroque art is almost the opposite. Renaissance art that are scenes, not portraits, because that's quite important. A portrait, obviously, usually just being one person. But in a scene in Renaissance art, they would often arrange things in, like, pyramids, in, like, a pyramid shape or lines. In a pyramid-shaped piece of art, the actual depiction of, of uh, people, usually, would be kind of vaguely in a pyramid shape. So you'd have the narrowest part at the top and the largest at the bottom. And this is often shown with, like, people... Um, So you might have like a mother in the center and then two children on either side. And because of that, like the way that she's sitting and then the children on either side of her, her head would be kind of the narrowest part at the top. And that's forming kind of the tip of the triangle. And then it goes down to the widest part, which is her body and the two children on sides of her. And so if you are interested in kind of seeing a, um, just an example of what this might look like, you can look at the Madonna of the Goldfinch, which is a Raphael painting. And that just shows um, the Madonna, of course, and then children on either side of her. And so it does sort of form this very triangular shape. Um, This is the same for anyone who has seen or knows kind of what the Pieta looks like, which is in the Vatican. That is a statue by Michelangelo, and it shows Mary holding Jesus's body after his crucifixion. So Mary is actually sat down, and um, Jesus is draped across her lap, kind of, um, after he has been crucified. And because of this, her head, again, is kind of at the top of the pyramid or the triangle, and then as it goes down to him laying kind of across her lap, that then widens out. And that would be the bottom of the triangle. So you do have examples Of that. Um, There are also, um, so you have this kind of interest in triangular shapes. You also have a lot of interest in lines. So you'll often see kind of attention to um, parallel and perpendicular lines. So there'll be images, for instance, of like the crucifixion where you see Jesus um, on the cross and then on the other two sides, the thieves who were also crucified alongside him. The vertical part of the three crosses, of course, are all going to be parallel to each other. And then the horizontal part of all the crosses where their arms would be. Um, nailed, that is going to be perpendicular to those three parallel lines. So if you think about um, Renaissance art, it's almost very like mathematically correct. Like there's this real interest in having all the lines sort of make sense. Like it's very rational, um, but because of this interest in this very kind of rational style of painting, it is also kind of seen as being very still So even though you might have a scene where people, you know, are doing things or are in action, it doesn't really look like they're in motion at all. They kind of, it looks like um, if you were trying to get people to pose as if they were doing something, but everyone's clearly posed in a way. I guess that's the easiest way I can think to describe it. Baroque art is different, because like I said, it can build on the techniques established by the Renaissance, but then it can kind of take them and twist them around a bit. So they know about perspective now, they know about using kind of symmetry and math in their work to make it all look as nice as possible, and then to an extent they throw some of that out the window. Um, So they obviously keep perspective and such, but the idea of everything being kind of neat and orderly, they don't really seem to follow. So, Baroque art is all about motion. There's no sense of stillness in these uh, in these works. They um, don't kind of keep the lines parallel, perpendicular, even, etc. Because it's all about the chaos of motion, it'll almost look like I paused a film. If I started it up again, it would seem like it would continue. So this is a bit different from Renaissance because it's a bit more lifelike, I think. They also use light for dramatic effect quite frequently in Baroque art. So a lot of times you'll have a very dark background, and then the prominent figure or kind of factor of the scene will then be very dramatically spotlit, so it almost looks like you're seeing a play, which I think is quite interesting. Um, But that's kind of the main difference between Renaissance and Baroque. I'm sure an art historian could go on for ages and ages telling you more differences, but those are kind of the ones that are, in my opinion, quite important to know to understand the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) So anyway, it's back to Artemisia. So in her early life, she was raised um, to paint alongside her brothers, and she was taught by her father. But then it quickly became apparent that she was the true kind of prodigy of all the children. And so her father arranged for her to be privately tutored in art. Um, And in 1610, when she was 17 years old, she completed one of her masterpieces. This is something that I'll actually be talking about later because it's so important um, and it's such a well-known piece by her. And it's called Susanna and the Elders. She actually did a couple of different versions of this painting, but I'm going to be talking about the 1610 version later on. This is the part that's about to get a bit gruesome, unfortunately. In 1611, the tutor that her father had hired to kind of privately teach her art, um, he rapes her. Now, of course, he's an artist as well, because otherwise, why would he be teaching her art? And I'm only going to say his name once, because I don't think we should be glorifying him, especially as this is Artemisia's story. Um, his name is Augustino Tassi. I actually considered not mentioning his name at all because it's her story and I really don't think that he should factor into it, um, at least kind of on a personal level. But I decided to say his name once just because since he is an artist and you can still technically like find his art. I don't actually know that he's displayed many places, but since he, you know, he is an artist, I do think it's worth knowing kind of who he was as a person. I know that some people think that you can separate art from the the artist, and some people think you can't, and those are both personal beliefs that I can't sway you on either direction, but if you are someone who doesn't think that you should like the art of, you know, known bad people, then this is someone that you would want to avoid. Um, for the remainder of the podcast, I have made the executive decision to nickname him. Now, usually when I nickname people, if I do at all, it's just shortened versions of their name. I don't like this guy at all, though. He is clearly the scum of the earth. Um, and we're going to get into why in a moment, beyond just what I've said already. So, because he is truly a massive dick, I've decided that instead of giving him a nickname based on his own name, I'm going to call him Brock Turner. Why? Well, um, for anyone who's in the US, you will know that Brock Turner was a guy who um, committed sexual assaults and then got like little to no punishment. He went to jail briefly, and I think he's out now. And it was basically this big slap on the wrist that the entire country got really up in arms about. And so I've decided to um, call this this artist by the name Brock Turner, a, because like I said, I don't want to make this story about him. It's Artemisia's story. But also, I just think it's a good way to remind you all how much Brock Turner sucks. Fuck that guy. If he's listening to this podcast, I don't know why he would be. But fuck you, Brock Turner. I hope that you know your scum. So I'm going to call him Brock. And that's just the decision I've made. Hope you don't mind. So yes, in 1611, Brock Turner raped Artemisia. Um, she was 18 years old. After the rape occurred... He coerced her into continuing an affair with him, basically because he reminded her that her um, reputation was ruined by this rape. She was no longer a virgin. And because of that, he said that the only way for this really to end well for her was if she married him. And so he kept saying that if you, if you sleep with me, we'll have an affair. And then he would marry her and it would save her reputation. I mean, it would be garbage, like scum of the earth because she'd have to be married to him, but she wouldn't be kind of outcast from society, basically. So she was forced to continue this affair with him. I can only imagine how awful that would have been. And he never ended up kind of following through with his promise to marry her. Now, eventually her father got pissed. Because he thought that Brock was gonna marry Artemisia. So when he didn't do it, uh, her father brought charges against him. Now, this is interesting because the only reason they could bring charges against him was because he took her virginity. Rape at the time wasn't a punishable crime, so they couldn't bring charges just for the rape. It was only because he had taken her virginity. And if you think about it, um, and this is so disgusting, but her virginity was sort of like a valuable thing that her father owned because as his child, he could use her as um, almost like a bargaining chip through marriage. It was almost like his property. And because Brock Turner took her virginity, that was something that was lost, not just for her, but for her family and her father as well. So, he was able to bring charges despite the fact that rape wasn't punishable at the time. Um, Also, during this whole trial, it became clear that A, Brock was already married. So, I don't know how he thought he was going to... I mean, he clearly never was going to marry her, but if only they... I don't know if they knew he was married and they thought he was going to, like, leave the wife. That wouldn't be cool in Catholic country, so I don't know how that would have worked. He had also committed quote-unquote incest, Um, and that was actually with his sister-in-law, so the sister of his wife. So we wouldn't really call that incest. We would just call it like shitty behavior, Um, but back then the concept of having a sister-in-law didn't really exist. When you married someone, their family was your family, so they were your sister. So it was considered incest, um, even though they weren't actually Like, it wasn't his own sister, I guess, if that makes sense. And then he also tried to have his wife murdered. So, he was already married. He tried to have his wife killed. He is, like... Oh, my God. He is the worst human. Um, This is just all around a piece of garbage person. Um, I don't even feel bad for hating him so much. Like, there's no way to be unbiased about this guy. He's literally just a shithead. And I know that they're all dead because this is in the 1600s, but God am I glad this guy's dead. Anywho, I know I already did all the research on how shit this guy is, but just rereading it and saying it out loud, it's like, thank God I have a drink here. So then, like I said, they brought this all to trial. Now, the trial is very well documented, but the thing is, is that her rape and the subsequent trial really overshadowed her career while she was alive. And because of that, I don't want to spend too much time on it. So, I'm not really going to get into like the gory details of what she actually said occurred because I just don't think um, it's going to change things that much. I mean basically what you need to know is that he forced himself on her and she did not want it. I'll bring up a couple of things a little bit later, but overall, like, how- for how well documented it is, I don't want to get too in-depth with it. So, like I said, pressing charges for any kind of sexual misconduct at that time was basically unheard of, um, and so this made Januleski kind of, like, a heroine that we would see now. Like, looking back on her, she, um, you know, stood up for herself and what had been done to her, and that's something that we would really respect today. Um, but obviously, back then, it was a bit different, and so they almost, like, she was very much a subject of ridicule. And I found this really interesting. Um, when I was doing research, and clearly it wasn't just me who was thinking this, because somebody else Um, that I was reading brought this up as well, but she is like the Christine Blasey Ford of her time, Um, and it's interesting to think that we still do this shit today. Like, I said that we look, like, we might look back on Jen now as being a heroine, even though in her time she was ridiculed, but we only look back on her that way because we've got the perspective of time, and we're not living contemporarily to her. Whereas Christine Blasey Ford, who we do live kind of in the same time as, and and we've seen her trial happen, there are so many scumbags who have been sending her death threats. And like, she is the Artemisia Ginoweski of today, in terms of like, this public trial that just made her the subject of scrutiny. And so I think that that parallel is quite interesting. Artemisia was examined by a midwife, in front of a male judge um to prove that she was no longer a virgin also i'm sorry <laughs> i even wrote this in my notes but what the fuck i this is something that i just want to say like i understand back then that they had genuine beliefs of this so of course like i can't really judge them based on their lack of knowledge on human anatomy. But I really want to say right now, just for anyone listening who might not understand how the female body works, um, that's not how virginity works. It's not, um, There's, there's actually a really awesome episode of Adam Ruins Everything that goes into this. Not that I'm, you know, I'm not, I wish I was sponsored by Adam Ruins Everything. I'm not, um, but I just want to say there's a really awesome episode that goes into this, and basically that like um, the virginity isn't like one of those protective seals on like medicine or something that like once you like puncture it, you're no longer a virgin. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, and so the idea that you can test to see if somebody is a virgin by testing their hymen isn't really like, a scientific thing that exists. It's not something you can really do. And also, loads of women break their hymens way before they ever have sex. So, this has just been, like, a weird side diversion into, like, the uterus. But my god, like, at this point, I just hope that in 2019, people understand that because I'm really worried that people might not. Um, But yeah, so she was... um, examined in front of a judge to prove that she wasn't a virgin any longer and to prove that then that, you know, that he had taken that away from her. Um, but obviously today we know that that doesn't really prove anything. So it's just worth saying. Um, during the trial, she was tortured with thumbscrews to prove that she was telling the truth. So basically they would press her thumbs between thumbscrews that would then kind of crush her fingers as they were tightened. And that was um, a way of, they would kind of question her, and as they were tightening these thumbscrews, obviously, some people would, would cry for them to stop and say that they were lying or whatever, um, and so it was believed that, like, this torture would help get the truth out. She didn't really change her story, but she was tortured, even though she was the victim, which is horrifying, and not only would this have been just physically terrible to have to undergo, Um, You think, of course, that she's also an artist, so her hands are kind of her livelihood. And it's very... You can imagine that that would have been quite upsetting for her, just beyond like the physical pain in the moment. Um, This doesn't stop her from painting. It doesn't kind of cripple her or anything, but I imagine that it it definitely would have been an issue for a time to have her thumbs kind of crushed. Um, So during the attack on her... There had been another woman in the house, or her name is, and I'm going to say this probably not correctly, her name's Tuzia, Um, and she was there, but she didn't help Artemisia when she cried out. And she actually spoke against Artemisia in the trial, which is interesting. Um, but loads and loads of other people, like people who were around the time or like character witnesses, spoke in Artemisia's favor. So there's like, there's not belief that she was lying. This isn't um, a case where she decided to, to cry sexual assault afterwards. Um, there's kind of a very conclusive belief that it did occur. But it's interesting that Tuzia, who was in the house... Um, didn't help her, and then actually tried to kind of make things worse at the trial. So, that's um, bizarre. That's that. (laughs) Um, And then after about seven or eight months of this trial going on, Artemisia finally won the case. Brock Turner was sentenced to five years in prison, but he never ended up serving time. So, like, the real Brock Turner today um, let off far too lightly. The reason that um, Janileski's attacker Brock Turner uh, was let off was because he had the Pope's protection, Um, and the Pope was uh, like the Pope wasn't bothered at the time that he was kind of commissioning someone that was um, found guilty. And I, I do want to make a point as well to say that I mentioned how infrequently sexual misconduct trials were held. It was something that was so uncommon at the time. So the fact that not only it occurred, but then that Artemisia won the case was kind of incredible, Um, but it didn't really matter because he had the Pope's protection, and so he didn't end up actually facing the punishment that he deserved. Um, But her life after the trial, basically because of the public scrutiny that she underwent during the trial and kind of the shame that followed, Artemisia was quickly married off by her father to another painter called Pierantonio Stiatesi. I hope I said that right. <laughs> Stiatesi. I don't know. Um, Artemisia and Pier Antonio then moved away to Florence, so she finally gets out of Rome, um, which was probably quite healthy <laughs> to be away um, and to escape some of the stigma. In Florence, Artemisia had children, although there's a bit of confusion over how many children she had. Um, Depending on the sources, the numbers are different. Um, But one of her children was a daughter called Prudencia, and that was um, a name given to her daughter because it was her own mother's name. The mother that I mentioned died when Artemisia was 12. So her daughter was called Prudencia. but actually they kind of nicknamed her or called her Palmyra which is interesting, and um, because of the fact that she had these two separate names, like Palmyra is not a nickname for Prudencia, and because of this, um, there is some confusion about how many children she had, Um, and so the numbers by scholars differ, and I just didn't really want to have to dig too deep into that, Um, but she did have children, and Palmyra in particular was, um, known to also be an artist, and she was trained by her mother, although from what I can tell, she doesn't really have any surviving art. During this time, Artemisia became quite successful in her art. She took commissions from the Medici family, and they were, of course, the, the very well-established banker family, but they were also, um, like, de facto ruling. They were, like, they were the rulers, basically, of Florence. They're not technically, um, seen by most people as being like royalty, although I think by this time they're dukes, so they are kind of, they have this noble status, Um, but they're not like kings the way we think of other other countries, because it's more of a city-state situation. So she was commissioned by the Medici family. She was the first woman to be accepted into the Academy of the Arts of Drawing in Florence. Um, So really, like when I said she's breaking the glass ceiling, she truly is one of the first people to be doing any of the things that she's doing. So she is such an inspiration, I think. Um, But I think it shows how much her talent speaks for itself, that she was the first woman in kind of a man's world and in a man's profession to be admitted to the Academy of Arts of Drawing. And um, it's worth saying as well that like women... Might have been painting back then, but it was always kind of seen as like a hobby or something that they did kind of for the home and not something that you would do as a profession. Women didn't really, uh, women weren't really meant to be kind of doing professional painting. So the fact that she's accepted into this academy is hugely important. And acceptance allowed her to buy and um, to buy her paint and supplies without a man's permission. She was allowed to travel alone, which you can imagine was really important, and also sign contracts on her own without kind of having to consult her husband. And it was also a really good networking opportunity, basically. She met a lot of really important and influential people of her time. At this point, um, speaking of influential people, because of her role in the court at Florence um, and her patronage by the Medici family. She became friends with Galileo Galilei, Um, and I think that name speaks for itself, but of course he was a scientist and a mathematician. I clicked onto his Wikipedia page just kind of out of interest to see what they would say, and the list of words that they give to like describe a person at the very beginning, just to kind of give you like a taste of who they are, was so lengthy. I was going to try to use some of them just to give a basic understanding um, and a reminder of who he is, but there were so many that it just didn't feel worth it at that point. But he was clearly an incredible contact for her to have, and they really did become friends. They actually exchanged many letters um, throughout their friendships. That's quite interesting. During this time in her life, she painted one of her most well-known images which now hangs in the Uffizi Gallery, and it's called Judith Slang Holofernes. I'll be talking about this painting a little bit later on as well. Um, And then in 1620, she actually left her husband due to financial issues, Um, so they wouldn't have been separated like in any legal sense. They were still married um, as they were Catholic, and that wasn't a thing that Catholics can do. But they would have lived separately, and because she was part of the Academy of the Arts. She was able to travel alone, like I said, so she actually leaves her husband. And at this point, she kind of travels around a bit. She goes through many of the different cities in Italy. She also ends up in England at one point. Um, her father was in England, and they end up working for Charles the First which is quite interesting. So, I just want to talk about her art now. So, first, just some general notes about her art. So, she followed in the footsteps of her father and of Caravaggio and kind of followed along with their style, though she was a lot more naturalistic than her father. So, her father and, to an extent, Caravaggio as well, They would paint very idealized scenes. It might be quite dramatic in the Baroque sense of how I mentioned before with the lighting and and kind of the idea that this is in motion, but they would also be a little bit idealized so it didn't quite look real, maybe, whereas Artemisia was quite natural natural and, dare I even say, a bit brutal in her art. Um, She would really show the strains that some people went through in the actions that they were doing and I'll be talking about that in a moment. Um, but because she was a woman, she also had exposure to nude women that she could then paint, whereas other artists, because they were men, they wouldn't be able to paint nude women from real life. So she was quite well known for lifelike female nude paintings. and she find this quite funny because um, you have male artists who are painting women. And to an extent, they might not look, like, ridiculous because you think that they've seen, if they're married, at least one nude woman. Um, But then you have somebody like Michelangelo, who is clearly, like, one of the absolute masters of Renaissance art, but he could not paint a nude woman worth a damn. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen his nude women. They truly look like men with, like, kind of lopsided boobs hanging off of them. Like, the boobs don't even look right. They look kind of nuts. I'm not a big fan. That does kind of make sense with his sexuality, which was not particularly heterosexual. But, so she kind of had the most access to seeing nude women because, of course, she was a woman and um, women might kind of be a bit more prone to changing around each other and such at the time. So, she knew what they looked like best and she didn't paint men so she didn't have to worry about kind of the the factors of painting the other gender, the way that men painting nude women would have had to, so it's quite interesting. But she is very well known for her natural depictions of of nude women and how how a woman would look. She's also well known for painting scenes that show women either taking direct action, or she also shows women being attacked, which is um, again sort of interesting based on her own life. But she didn't glorify the attacking, which I think is quite important, and I'll be talking about. Um, some differences with other artists in a moment about the glorification of attacks. She also made many self-portraits, but in some of her paintings that are actually not self-portraits, I would say the heroines also often resemble the self-portraits. So it seems, at least to me, I don't know if this is kind of a general consensus among art historians, but it seems to me like she might have sort of almost self-inserted or, um, or seen herself as kind of being the protagonist of some of these stories, or, or at least known that, um, that her story or her life was kind of similar to the struggles of the women that she was painting. So sometimes she'll show saints or women from the Bible, and they will kind of look like her self-portraits. And so it seems like she is relating their story to her own life, and not just about her rape, but even just the fact that she was kind of a woman in a male-dominant profession and the struggles of that, so I think she really saw herself um, in, in these other women and and kind of put herself in there. There's also, of course, the idea that she put herself in these paintings because it was almost a form of self-promotion, that if you are in the paintings that you paint, Um, then people know your face, and then people want your face, and then people will buy things from you. And that was a common tactic that men used as well. So it's not about like female vanity. Um, It was kind of a common thing to do at the time. I'm going to talk now about Artemisia's Susanna and the elders. I mentioned earlier, she painted it in 1610, just before um, she was attacked by Brock Turner. And so um, there are several versions of this scene that. Artemisia actually painted, but I'm only going to focus on the 1610 version. And so I'm going to talk a bit about the story of Susanna and the elders. So it is a story from the Bible, and basically it is um, from one of the apocryphal um, books. So it's the book of David, and um, it's used in the kind of Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions, but Protestants don't follow the story anymore. But it's the story of a woman called Susanna. And um, there was, Susanna basically was a Hebrew wife, and she was sitting in a garden. And these two kind of gross, disgusting men, as usual, as all these stories go, uh, these two gross, (coughs) disgusting men um, come upon her in this garden and basically say that if you don't sleep with us, we are going to tell everyone that you were in this garden waiting to meet a young man Um, you know, for fun, sexy times. And so, of course, this is just blackmail. So they want her to sleep with them. Susanna then says that she won't be blackmailed. If they have to lie about what she was doing, then that is better than her having sex with them. So she, which is both a mic drop and kind of like patriarchy. So it's, on the one hand, it's like super baller that she says that. And on the other hand, it's kind of like, Wow, it's just because she's married and she's her husband's property. So I don't really know how I feel about that. But whatever, it's a Bible story. They don't care how I feel about it. Um, so because she refuses them, she was arrested because they told this story. And they were going to put her to death for being promiscuous. But there's a young man called David. And he basically stops the proceedings and because um, he believes that she is innocent. So they... Separate the two men, the two gross, lecherous, disgusting pigs. I can say that because they're clearly guilty. And um, they cross examine them about what happened. So I can't believe they didn't do that in the first place. And so they ask them kind of what the story was. And because of the way they they answer, they know that they're lying. But they give different testimonies on what kind of tree Susanna was supposedly meant to meet her um, paramour under. So one says they were meant to meet under a mastic tree, and then the other says they were going to meet under an evergreen oak tree, and um, the issue there is that there's a pretty big size difference between those two trees. I don't know anything about trees, so I'm going to take kind of their word for it, but apparently they're quite different looking, and so um, because of that, David was able to prove that they were lying, and so the, the, the two gross men are put to death and Susanna is kind of redeemed and, and shown to be good because A, she was innocent, and B, she was willing to die rather than have sex outside of her marriage. Um, so she is kind of this virtuous woman, and the kind of the ideal of virtue triumphs over all, I suppose. Um, and so this story of the Bible was portrayed loads of times by artists, Um, But some of them actually, interestingly enough, have Susanna with the two men as they kind of come upon her in the garden. And she looks at them in a sort of a very coquettish, like, come, come here, like, I'm very interested kind of way. And all I could think of was, like, that one person that I think everyone kind of knew one person in high school, who was somehow both very religious and sort of, like, a little bit, you know, crazy. Like, Catholic in the streets thought in the sheets, which is fine. Like, I'm not bothered by it. It's a bit confusingly hypocritical, maybe. Um, But, you know, I'm not here to slut shame, so it's fine. Um, But she kind of reminds me of that when they paint her this way, because it's like, she's clearly about to tell them no. And yet, for whatever reason, these male artists make her look like she's sort of interested or trying to draw them in, which is a bit of a weird way to make this story visualized, but I don't know, whatever. And then Artemisia, um, she paints this scene and she actually has Susanna leaning away from the men. The men are kind of above her. They're sort of behind like a wall that she is sitting in front of. And so they're both behind her and a bit above her. And so they're kind of leaning down and one's kind of um got his fingers like right by her head. Actually they both kind of have their fingers right by her head. But um, she's leaning away from them and she has her hands up sort of to protect her head almost. Um, so clearly this this moment that we've paused the action in is showing that she's not interested in them touching her because they're very, very close to her. So they're um, kind of in her bubble and she's kind of, she's telling them to fuck off and get out of her bubble and um, And she is kind of withdrawing into herself, so she's not necessarily fighting back. But, of course, she doesn't fight back in the story, so they're keeping it as close to kind of what it's meant to be as possible. Um, But Artemisia definitely depicts this in a different way than a lot of the artists. Um, And it is honestly a very beautiful, beautiful image. She's got kind of this lovely hair that's cascading down her body, and you can see the, the real kind of... I think her face doesn't look that panicked, but it's something about her hands that really just look like she does not want to be talking to these men, um, which is quite interesting. Now, um, I wanted to mention as well, kind of, sort of a a more modern way that this art has been meaningful. There's a modern artist, and I'm trying not to say her name wrong. I think it's Kathleen Gillia. I listened to a video of her pronouncing it, so hopefully I didn't mess it up too badly. Um, but there's a modern artist, Kathleen Gillia, who in 1998 created kind of a new spin on this, um, Artemisia, Susanna, and the elders piece. And so what she did was she painted a scene of the character Susanna, but it's different because she's actually sitting up and she's holding a knife but the men, in in the original painting, the men are kind of very near her, and they sort of look like they're reaching out to touch her in a way. Um, but in this version, uh, with Susanna wielding her knife, they are actually pulling her hair. And so, um, again, like in the original painting, she's kind of um, twisted her body away from the men. Whereas in this one, because they've pulled her hair, she is kind of sat starkly upright, like they're kind of a... A puppet master pulling her by her strings because it's literally by her hair. And then she's holding this knife kind of in self-defense. So this is a very, very rough image. Um, and I want to mention, of course, again, this isn't something that Artemisia paints. It's just Kathleen Gillia. So then Gillia, after she's painted um, this like reimagined version of m- what might have happened, she then paints over it with the original scene done by Artemisia. So, um, Susanna kind of curled in on herself with her hands in defense, etc. And because she had painted over it with a rendition of the original, she then can x ray it and it'll show her version underneath. So, it's a really, really stunning image where you see, um, you can see Artemisia's, or like her her own stylization of the original Artemisia painting with her curled in. But then underneath that, you can see this like second version of Susanna who is being pulled up violently by her hair holding this knife. Now, Gilea decided to do this because she saw a parallel between the story of Susanna in the Bible and Artemisia's own story. So, there's no mention of a knife in Susanna's story, of course. I said earlier that um, she didn't have a weapon or anything, and her only real weapon was her willingness to die and her virtue. Because Gilea sees a parallel between uh, Susanna's innocence, despite these people claiming that she's not, and Artemisia's own story of her attack, Uh, Gilead decided to make this piece. Now, in the court report, which I didn't delve into too much on Artemisia's attack, she says that she actually used a knife to try to defend herself from her attacker. And so that's why Gilead decides to um, sort of reimagine the story with more of Artemisia's own life involved in it. And she, of course, then is seen holding the knife. Um, So they definitely took some of Artemisia's own history and put it into that piece. So this image is very stark. It shows a woman who's fighting back. Not that, you know, Susanna and the Elders by, like the original by Artemisia is somehow inferior. Because, of course, she's just following the story. She really can't have Susanna fighting back. Um, But this shows something different. And I do think it is quite quite stunning, even though it's very dark and you can see her screaming. Um, And so it's something that I'd really like to post to my kind of social media platform. So if anyone wants to see what it looks like, otherwise, if you just Google um, Susanna and the Elders Artemisia x-ray, it'll pull this up. There was a false report going around on the internet, especially Tumblr. I actually remember seeing this on Tumblr. Not that I really use that website anymore, but I did like, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And I remember actually seeing it going around because people were saying that Artemisia Gentileschi's Susanna and the Elders had been x-rayed and you could see the underpainting done by Gentileschi. but that's not true. The concept of underpaintings isn't uncommon. Um, a lot of times artists would do a painting and then have to paint over it to change things slightly. Actually, it's so common that I think it would happen in any painting, really. Um, although this would have been more because it would have been the entire figure of Susanna that would have really needed to be changed. Um, but underpaintings by no means are uncommon. They're very, very regular to have. Um, but this particular image is not an underpainting done by Januleski. It was specifically done by Gilia, um, and then x-rayed after she kind of painted over it with Ginolesky's original or kind of a reinterpretation of Zunemlowski's original. And so this is a modern take on classical art, and it's meant to say something different, I suppose, than what Artemisia said. So I'm sorry, this has been a really long kind of rabbit hole that I've gone into with Kathleen Gillia, but I do think it's interesting to know how Artemisia's art is still kind of being very relevant and kind of topical today. Um, Not that her art itself isn't, but the fact that it's sort of being reimagined and telling new stories is quite interesting. This was done in 1998, so um, definitely a bit more recent than the 1600s. It's worth saying as well that like in the late 20th century, so 1998 would of course fit in that, that there was this real surge in interest in female art, and Artemisia in particular. Um, So it doesn't really seem surprising that somebody would want to do a new take on this art, but it, I just want to kind of very clearly clearly state that the underpainting that you see in these x-rays, that's not something that Artemisia did because the internet is very confused on it. I actually had to scour so many different pages, including Gilea's own website, and it still seemed like there wasn't certainty on whether Artemisia did it, but it, it was not her. It was entirely Gilea that did this underpainting. Um, But I'll definitely post it to my page because it is something quite worth seeing. The uh, second painting that I want to mention, I said earlier that she created a painting that she's pretty much most well known for, and it's called Judith Slaying Holofernes. Um, This is another Bible story. It is from the Book of Judith. Again, one of these stories that is kind of followed by the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox faiths, but not by Protestants. So it's a kind of contested book, and it is a story in which the um, kind of the Israelites are under attack by the Assyrians, and there is a man called Holofernes who is an Assyrian general, and he is about to come in with his army and destroy Judith's home, the city of Bethulia because she doesn't want her home to be destroyed, she actually decides to personally take action rather than kind of waiting for others to do so. So she goes to meet with um, Holofernes in his camp, and he is kind of taken with her beauty. She kind of seduces him. She then comes into his tent, gets him drunk, and he passes out. Once he's passed out, Judith and her kind of female maidservant um, behead him, and they take his head away in a basket. And of course, that is her kind of way of trying to save her city. So this is, again, another scene that is painted loads and loads of times by many different artists. Um, Artemisia does this around 1620, so after she has already moved to Florence. So many of the artists who depict this biblical scene, they either show Judith after the beheading has taken place, just kind of holding the head or sitting with the head, or sometimes they'll show Judith and her maidservant kind of with the head. After, like immediately after it's taken place um, putting it in the basket and, and leaving. So a lot of times you don't actually see the beheading take place at all you would just know based on kind of the context that it was Judith and that Holofernes was the head that you saw Caravaggio who um, I mentioned of course earlier being a big influence on her art he also painted this scene now he does show Judith physically beheading Holofernes so you do see the action Um, However, this one, in my opinion, is a bit inferior to Artemisia's, and that is because it doesn't look quite real. So you see her beheading him, but she's standing at a distance. She's wearing white, which would show kind of that she is like very pure or that she kind of has the grace of God that she's doing this even though she's committing a murder. And she's, you know, you have to imagine that even though blood is spurting out of his neck, she is still kind of in this beautiful white Um, And like I said, she's standing at a distance, and because of that, um, her arms are actually locked, I would say, um, kind of straight out in front of her, so she's not being able to actually put any weight behind what she's doing, so that she is, you actually see the knife halfway through um, Holofernes' neck, and so you have to imagine that there's some force behind that, but it doesn't look like she's actually using force, because her arms are locked and she's standing at a distance from it, almost like she's not really part of the action that she herself is doing, which is quite interesting. I think it's kind of a way of disconnecting this woman with um, what could be kind of considered a holy mission from the actual physical action of having to murder someone. Um, so she is herself a bit distanced, even though it's her hands committing the murder. So, it does seem a bit unnatural. It doesn't seem like she could have just, like, the physical weight behind what would be required to actually cut through someone's neck. There's no sense that any physical force is even required to perform this task shown in the painting. So, um, it's not a bad painting. I definitely prefer, personally, Artemisia's interpretation of the scene. In Artemisia's version, it's very, very baroque in style, Um, so the characters are in a dark room, and which I guess makes sense because it's nighttime, but a lot of other scenes aren't quite as dark as hers is. And then the actual people are quite dramatically lit. Unlike the other versions, including Caravaggio's, this version of the murder is very aggressive. So she is not holding back. She's very much part of kind of the action that she is taking. So there's no sense of um, kind of a separation between Judith, the woman, and the action of cutting off the head. (laughs) So despite being drunk, Holofernes is very clearly trying to fight back, which I think adds a lot to the scene that he is pushing back as much as they are attacking him. Um, Judith is using force in the attempt to cut off his head. You see her kind of, because he's obviously laying and she's standing, so you kind of see her above him, and she's really putting her weight into it as she is trying to kind of saw through his neck, basically, which is kind of gross. In a lot of the other paintings that depict the scene, the maid is just sort of also there. Um, She was really there to help carry the head out in the basket, but in this scene in particular the maid is actually using force as well. So she is standing above Holofernes and as he is fighting back, he's he's using his arms to fight back and she is pushing down against him so that he can't stop Judith from from cutting off his head. <laughs> so you have both of these women really taking force and the whole scene is very naturalistic. He is bleeding quite heavily and um his bleeding head just because of the perspective that we see this from his head is actually the closest thing to us in the image and so um it's very kind of in your face and the blood is very um realistic and you really focus on his head being cut off Um, you don't feel kind of detached from the scene i suppose now i mentioned of course that the the maid servant is part of the scene she is pushing him down and so there was a Guardian article from 2016 where they're talking about this painting. They said it in a way that I kind of feel, but that I couldn't put it in quite the same words as they have. So you can search this Guardian article from 2016, but they said, um, makes the servant, a strong young woman who actively participates in the killing. This does two things. It adds a savage realism that even Caravaggio never thought of. It would take two women to kill this brute but it also gives the scene a revolutionary implication. What, wonders Genileski, if women got together? Could we fight back against a world ruled by men? I think it's quite interesting as well, this idea that Judith and her maid have clearly teamed up, that this is kind of a group action by two women who are both, you know, firmly believing that they need to take action to protect their city. It's not just Judith, who's committing the murder, and then her maidservant just going to help her take the head away. This is really two women who know that together they can do something, and I do think that even if Ginolesky wasn't thinking, what if women got together? Could we fight back? I think, in a way, art is as much what the artist means as what is how we interpret it, <laughs> Um, And so the fact that we can today interpret it that way is quite important. Um, And it really says a lot about the way that we view women today, that we need to be fighting back. So I think it's a really, really just stunning piece. um, And it's very dark, but there's a lot to look at in it. Um, And so there's a couple of other interesting bits about it. As I mentioned, Ginolesky was friends with Galileo Galilei, and she must have learned a couple of things from him. Um, because in a lot of versions of this painting, including Caravaggio's, they would show the blood spurting out in a very unnatural way. And that's, you know, mostly just because he couldn't, even if you have, you know, people standing in that you could paint from to kind of make it look lifelike, you obviously weren't going to cut off someone's head, so you wouldn't really see what it would look like. Um, and so you just kind of had to paint it the way you thought it would look. Um, but the if you ever if you decide to Google or to find out on my page, the Caravaggio version, um, the blood is really spurting out in like a perfect kind of arc and all together, which looks sort of strange. It almost looks like his neck is a hose, um, and it, that's not the way blood spurts. But because Januleski was friends with Galileo, he had actually discovered what's called the parabolic path of projectiles. And because of that, her um, bloody scene is much more realistic. So he has blood kind of all underneath his head. It's dripping down the bed, um, all over the sheets. It's honestly kind of a gross scene, Um, but it looks like something that you might see in, like, a Law & Order episode. Like, it doesn't look ridiculous. Um, when I look at the Caravaggio version, I almost feel like I kind of laugh a little bit because it just looks a bit ridiculous having this, like, hose of blood spurting out all at once, whereas hers genuinely looks like the scene of a murder. (laughs) Like, if I saw that in real life, I'd be calling the cops. So also, um, quite interesting, I mentioned that she was commissioned by the Medici family frequently during these years. And so this, uh, this painting was commissioned by Cosimo II de Medici, who was the Grand Duke of Florence. But the scene was actually so violent that he almost didn't pay for it. Actually, he personally didn't pay for it. Um, he didn't really like to look at it. He thought it was too too kind of violent, too visceral. So he actually hid it in a corner <laughs> Um, And didn't really want to hang it or to see it. And he dies in 1621. So only a year after it was finished. And it was only after his death. With the help of Galileo actually. That uh, Januleski was able to be paid for her work. (laughs) So that's a bit ridiculous. But they really found it almost distastefully gruesome. Maybe they didn't like that it was a woman taking such gruesome actions. But it really does look quite realistic. So maybe that bothered them a bit as well. Galileo helped her get paid. I honestly want, like, a buddy film. Like, I went... Okay, so I went to Galileo's Wikipedia page, like I said, and I just was kind of interested. So I did, like, the the command F to see if her name came up on his Wikipedia page at all because, I mean, he wrote letters to her and he helped her get paid with this, this commission that was... um for the Medici family. So, I did a search of her name on his Wikipedia page, and it did not come up. So, clearly, people think that he played more of a role in her life than she did in his, which is interesting. I'm not necessarily saying it's not true, um, but it is interesting that she doesn't come up on his page. But, with that said, I would love, like, if anyone out there is a movie exec and needs an idea, hit me up, because I would love a buddy film with... Artemisia Ginileschi, badass female artist of her time, like breaking into an industry that doesn't want her. And Galileo Galilei, the mathematician and scientist who is, you know, pissing everyone off with his belief about, like, how the universe works and, um, like ideas about gravity and such. I mean, he's not, like, the gravity guy, but he definitely had some ideas. And, like, just the lives that they would have lived. And, like, I don't even need it to be historically accurate, to be honest. Like, I know that that's a controversial thing to say on a history podcast. But I would honestly just love to see them getting up to, like, shenanigans. Like, not be blatantly historically inaccurate. But just to say, like, since we don't really know what they did when they were actually physically together. They can just go off and do, like, random shit and like like you could have them solving crimes in florence and i'd be like yeah that's fine i don't even i'm not even mad about it because it would just be so ridiculous and i would really enjoy it it's like a buddy cop film somebody please make this i would cry um so that's my idea artemisia would be played by depends on how old she is i honestly could see olivia coleman playing artemisia if we just gave her a wig but i don't know it could go any really direction Anyways, I've gotten very off topic. But yeah, so Galileo helped her get paid after Cosimo II didn't really want to give her the money because he thought it was a little bit too graphic. He's not into the rated R paintings. And then Mary Gerard, who is a biographer of Artemisia today, she famously proposed an autobiographical reading of this painting, basically saying that um, Artemisia actually sees herself as Judith, And I suppose then um, rapist Brock Turner would be Holofernes. And so she's using this way of kind of having Judith cutting his head off as, um, quote, a cathartic expression of the artist's private and perhaps repressed rage. Which to me doesn't necessarily not make sense. Like that that checks for me. I'm not saying it's 100% the truth, but she clearly chooses to paint kind of women with agency. Um, and that's really a thing that she's quite interested in, these, these powerful women taking charge of their own story. And I don't think that that's an accident based on what happened to her. So I'm sure that even if she wasn't thinking this is about me and my life, I'm sure painting a woman cutting off a guy's head with a big old like knife sword thing probably felt pretty good. And to be honest... I, you know what? Relatable. I would also like to paint that if I had any artistic ability. I don't, but it would probably be pretty fun. That's why I'll just keep looking at this one. And then lastly, it was just worth mentioning a couple of her self-portraits. Um, I did say that she she likes to insert herself into scenes that she's not really part of, but then she also has self-portraits that are kind of widely believed to be her. There is still some doubt about these, but it mostly has to do with the way she's positioned. So usually should be kind of the, the figure in the painting will be kind of on a three-quarter angle, but their eyes are always looking directly out from the portrait. And that just seems to indicate to most people that it's because she had to look into a mirror to see herself. And that's common. That's something that male artists would have done as well. You see, um, I'm, I'm a big fan personally of Albrecht Dürer. And I love his last self-portrait. He did um, three that I know of. I'm not sure if he did more than that, but three that are known to me. And the last one, he actually stares head on right out of the painting. But even in the ones where he's turned kind of an angle, the he's always looking at you. And that, that would be the same for anyone else. I'm just using Durr as an example because I kind of specifically know about his self-portraits. So she has one that's called Self-Portrait as the Allegory of Painting. It was done when she was in England. It was for Charles I, who was an avid art collector, and he spent quite a lot of money on his art collection. This painting was controversial because it shows Artemisia um, painting herself, basically, but it also means that she is making herself the allegory of painting. Today, there are people who don't actually think that the woman Depicted is Artemisia, so there's not 100% consensus on this, although most people do think it is her. But even if it isn't her, the fact that she depicts a woman as the allegory of painting when painting as a profession was really quite a man's game is interesting. But if it is her, the fact that she makes herself the allegory of painting, this kind of like the almost the face of what painting is, what being an artist means, I find that very, I don't even really know what the word to use is. I find it very baller, I guess. Like, she's a boss. She knows she's a boss. She knows she's great at painting. She knows that she is one of the best of this time period. Um, I mean, at least maybe she believed that. I don't know if anyone was saying directly to her face that you're one of the best. I hope they were. Um, but, you know, she clearly sees herself as somebody who's very capable of the craft that she is in, and I think it's just a boss move to make yourself the allegory of painting this, this kind of the face of what being an artist is, and that is, you know, something that I have massive respect for her for. Um, This painting still remains in England since it was commissioned by Charles I, And in 2015, it was put on display at Hampton Court Palace. I'm kind of pissed off to learn that because I've been to Hampton Court Palace and I was so focused on all the Henry VIII stuff because Henry VIII is so cool. I mean, he sucks, but the whole time period is really cool. I don't think I was quite as focused on the other time periods depicted there. So, you go through like different halls, and part of it is like focused solely on Tudors. You get into different parts of the palace, and there'll be parts that are focused more on other time periods. And I just don't think I was quite as focused on the Charles I and like the Stuart time in general. Um, So, I clearly missed this painting, but it's cool that it's there. I'll have to go back. Um, I'm not positive it's still there. But last, like the last um, evidence that I could find of it was that it was on display at Hampton Court. So it might have been moved, but otherwise I'll have to go back and see it. There's another portrait called The Self-Portrait as St. Catherine of Alexandria. Now this um, is quite interesting. It was just purchased in 2018 by the National Gallery for 3.6 million pounds. Um... <laughs> So it's cool that they've procured this painting. I can go to the National Gallery anytime because that one's free and I don't live far away from it. And so this one shows Artemisia as Saint Catherine of Alexandria. So she is kind of both herself and being a saint, which she's not trying to say that she is a saint. Of course, that's ridiculous. But she's showing the saint, but then it, it clearly is also her. That doesn't make any sense. I hope that made sense. But so she has a halo just visible behind her head to show, of course, that she is a saint. Um, It's not like a medieval halo where it's like bright gold and like a big disc. Um, It's definitely much more subtle than that. If you Google it, you'll see. Um, Her left hand rests on top of a broken spiked wheel, and that was the symbol associated with St. Catherine of Alexandria. So, saints always have a symbol, and it is usually a symbol of how they were martyred. So, uh, St. Catherine was martyred in the early 4th century, and she was sentenced to death by the Emperor Maxentius, so she was um, bound to a wheel, studded with these iron spikes and nails, and then she eventually was able to escape the torture that they were putting her through um, because of this sort of heavenly, godly intervention, but then later on she was beheaded anyway, <laughs> so she doesn't escape for long. It's the story of St. Catherine, but um, I don't think it's that hard to see why she might have painted herself as St. Catherine. Um, not to say that St. Catherine was one of the only people tortured because loads of saints were tortured, unfortunately, um, but you can imagine, of course, that this the saint who was put on a wheel and, and tortured that way, the fact that she was in court and tortured with screws because they didn't believe her testimony, uh, you can imagine that um, she would have felt some kinship with these kind of women. So because this work was procured by the National Gallery, the portrait of Artemisia will now hang beside the work of uh, Caravaggio and her father that the National Gallery owns. So it's a bit like coming home. Of course, if it was going home, I guess it would go to the Uffizi, but whatever. Um, and these aren't the only two self-portraits of her. There are others, I think there are about five or six that like we... Are pretty certain are self portraits. There's one called Self Portrait as a Lute Player where she's quite literally playing the lute. Um, so she definitely liked to really show off, you know, her abilities. Sometimes she's painting, sometimes she's looting. Uh, that's not the way that you should say that. <laughs> sometimes she's playing the lute, sometimes she's a saint. And of course, there's always going to be a bit of controversy over whether these are really her, but we do generally have a sort of consensus that they are self-portraits. Getting into the end of her life now. So she painted throughout her life. There were some periods where um, there were kind of dry spells in her art um, in terms of kind of who was willing to commission and what she was kind of doing. But like I said, she does travel through Italy and she goes to England. So she was definitely moving around and enjoying this freedom of being able to travel and go where the patrons wanted her. Um, So she spent the last years of her life in Naples and she would continue painting into her 60s. She also taught male students and collaborated with other painters at the time. So I can only imagine how good it must have felt for her as a female artist who was kind of so unique for her time to be teaching young men how to paint. Like That must have felt so good that she was sort of seen as the master in that situation. Um, she died in 1656, we think. There was actually a belief that she had died in 1652 or 53, but then they found that she had been commissioned in 1654, so clearly she couldn't have been dead. Um, and they think she died in 1656 because there was a plague that swept through Naples, and so there's kind of a belief that that might have been what killed her. But overall, she painted at least 60 pieces that we know of, um, some presumably. 60 is kind of a low ball. Um, Some of them could have been lost to time and we'll never really know. Um, And then because she signed her name as just Ginolesky on some of the paintings, um, there's a chance that some of them would have been believed to be her father's work. Um, So that's confusing as well. And because of that, you know, I don't know that we necessarily are certain of how many she did. And so just now to talk a bit about her legacy... So unfortunately, despite having really important royal patrons, including the Medici family and Charles I in England, um, she was kind of forgotten after her life. Um, she had a lot of respect, I think, during her life as quite a talented painter, but after she was mostly overlooked, her rape and her subsequent trial overshadowed a lot of her career in many ways, unfortunately, which is why I was so keen to kind of not make that the focus necessarily, although it obviously does have an impact on the rest of her life. Um, and then, like I said just a second ago, she did sign her paintings, in some cases, Ginelleschi. There are centuries where people genuinely thought her art was her father's art, um, which is, you know, prime patriarchy for you. But um, it wasn't until the 20th century that she was really given the proper recognition that she deserves as an amazing female artist. Um, and the first woman to be accepted into the Academy of the Arts of Drawing in Florence, like that's I don't want to have any uncertain understanding of how important and amazing that feat was for her. Like, that was incredible, the fact that she was the first woman to be accepted. But basically, it's unfortunate how much of her legacy is just kind of nothing, that she was forgotten. However, like I said, in kind of the late 20th century, she really rises to prominence again as people start writing about female artists in these time periods, and she becomes much more well-known and much more respected for her art. Um, And I just kind of wanted to leave off with a quote that she wrote to one of her patrons during her life. She said, as long as I live, I will have control over my being. My illustrious lordship, I'll show you what a woman can do. And I think that's so inspiring that in the 1600s, someone who was attacked, who was only able to bring kind of action against him in court because of her virginity being taken for someone who was painting in a world that wasn't just dominated by men within her profession, but dominated by men in general that that didn't really respect women um, having agency at all. And the fact that she was kind of her own independent woman, that she lived separately from her husband, that she taught her daughter how to paint, that she worked for these important families and really made her life her own. And I'll show you what a woman can do. And my God, your girl did. Like, I look back now on the first time that I learned about Artemisia Gentileschi, And I just think that it's so lucky that we have women like this to look up to. I wonder, honestly, like, I don't know if men listening to this could explain this to me. I wonder if men see all of the men in history and feel like oh like it's so cool that men can do that like maybe they're just too overexposed to it so they just don't think about it but when i heard the story the first time i heard the story of artemisia jenowski probably when i was like 17 or 18 i remember thinking like she is just this incredible woman who really defied the odds <laughs> um, and so i don't know maybe maybe men feel it all the time or maybe men never feel it i don't know i don't know if it's better or worse to never have felt it because It's a great feeling, but also maybe to never have felt it means that you don't need to feel it. So I don't know. It's kind of the same way I felt seeing Captain Marvel, to be honest. But yes, so if anyone can show you what a woman can do, it is the amazing and talented Artemisia Januleski, who never let the terrible men of the world bring her down, um, but did, funnily enough, get to hang out with some of the coolest men, like Uh, Galileo Galilei. So, like I said, if anyone's looking for a movie idea, that's the one I have for you. Um, But that's the end of the episode. Thank you guys, as always, so much for listening. I hope that this was interesting. I actually did a search on Apple Podcasts in particular to see if there are podcasts out there on Artemisia Januleski, and I found like I think three. Um, So this might be a first for some of you to ever hear, which would be really exciting to me because a lot of the things I do um, have been covered by plenty of other history podcasts in the past, so mine aren't necessarily any better or worse than the other ones that you could hear, Um, but this I think is a bit more unique, Um, and so I hope you guys enjoyed it, um, if you're an art historian or know a lot about Artemisia Gentileschi, and I fucked it all up, you can feel free to let me know. Um, and I will definitely correct myself because this is a woman that I do not want to wrong. Um, and I do think some of her life is a bit shrouded in mystery because, unfortunately, women just don't tend to get written about that often, even if they're quite important. So there are some things that might be different depending on the sources you read. Um, but she's definitely worth learning about and knowing about. If you've never seen her paintings, I 100% recommend that you just Google her name. Things are going to pop up. You're going to want to look at them. They are violent and in some cases very depressing, but sort of inspiring as well to see these women depicted defending themselves or fighting back. I don't know. I like it. I think it Says a lot about what women for ages have had to put up with. Like the shit that women have gone through is incredible. And I think that it's great to see her depicting these women um, having agency. Um, but as always, I hope, like I said, I hope you enjoyed this. Um, if you did, or I guess if you didn't, please rate the show. Um, leave a review if you can, that would be so kind. I really like to hear. Um, any thoughts that you guys might have. um, Subscribe to the show if you want to hear more. I have the episodes coming up for more crazy kind of middle ages fun, I guess. It's going to get pretty dark, so if this episode was too dark for you, um, it's only getting darker or equally as dark. Um, So subscribe to the show if you want to hear all of that coming. We're definitely going to have some really interesting topics coming in the future. So hopefully you'll subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Um, I think currently I'm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and one other app that to be honest I don't remember. But you can subscribe on any of those platforms and new episodes will come out um, as soon as they go up on my page. You can also follow me um, so you can follow me just generally, but also if you want to see some of the pictures that I've talked about in this um, episode, I'll be posting those all. So you can find me on Twitter, which is at Happy History Pod, and then Instagram, Facebook, and my email are all Happy hour History Pod. So Instagram is at Happy hour History Pod. Facebook is you can search Happy Hour History, but if you're looking for like the specific um, kind of at tag that apparently Facebook pages also have now, that one's also Happy Hour History Pod and then my email is happyhourhistorypod at gmail.com. So you can find me on any of those um, different platforms. You can follow me, uh, interact with me, ask questions. Definitely email me if you have questions or corrections. Um, I would love to, you know, get to chat with you guys or see what you guys are up to, what you like, what you dislike. Um, So just let me know. And, uh, Let me know if you guys think Artemisia's story is interesting because I think she's someone that unfortunately doesn't maybe get the attention that she should. She is a baller bitch. She knew what she was about in a time where women women weren't really given a lot of respect. Um, So I think she is somebody definitely worth knowing. But thank you guys so much for listening. I will see you guys uh, for the next episode with my friend CJ. So it's going to be so much fun. And I'm really looking forward to it. So see you next time.